Listening to the Bondzilla Podcast. Everybody, it's time for a, a very special edition of the Bonzilla podcast as we make our way towards the end of the original Bonzilla run. I'm Nick. I'm Will. And and uh, it's time for a commentary edition of the Bonzilla podcast. Now, Will and, uh, and I, if you if you've listened to us over the course of this podcast, you'll know that we are big we're big commentary aficionados in general. Uh, we love just doing work to commentaries and 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 listening to commentaries and listening to the inside of commentaries and normally speaking you'll have commentaries from people who have actually worked on uh the movie but uh we find it's also fun to get these kind of fan commentaries and and just kind of some of that nonsense as well so we thought it'd be fun to kind of revisit the the beginnings of james bond the beginnings of uh this whole shebang podcast that we've had by revisiting the first Bond film in commentary form. Yes, yeah, and and as we said in our previous episode that, uh, you know, kind of just going back and just revisiting and doing kind of like a retroactive um, kind of review episode of it seemed a little bit too repetitive, even though we kind of wanted to do something in that vein. Uh, so uh, we thought, well, why don't we uh, do this? As Nick says, like both of us are huge movie commentary fans, and I'm actually I'm I'm quite a fan of the fan commentary too. Like, um, there there's some good ones out there, and uh, obviously I like a good filmmaker's commentary. But sometimes when you get like fans in there, uh, it's 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 it can be really fun. And in this case, um, what will be really interesting about it is like we are kind of coming in half with a little bit of um, uh, retroactive um, uh, material. Like, you know, we're coming in um, not only to enjoy the movie, but also to be like, well, how do we watch the movie now after doing the show? Yeah, and it'll be interesting for for me on Dr. No, because uh, in in previous years, Dr. No was among my kind of go-to just casual Bond watches. Like, it was just an easy watch if I just wanted to put something on. Uh, but over the course of the podcast, I've kind of found myself engaged in like newer additions to that, like, you know, For Your Eyes Only and kind of re-putting License to Kill in there. Um, and even like Never Say Never Again is kind of in that spot now. So it, it's been a while uh, since I've actually revisited Dr. No. Uh, and with the full kind of scale and knowledge of, of what we've learned on the podcast, it will be very interesting to go back in and see its origins. and 
also, I mean, uh, it will be also interesting to kind of go back to that early Sean Connery, um, especially considering his recent passing. It'll be nice to kind of reflect on how his performance really shapes this franchise and really gets it out onto the step it needs. Yeah, and then uh, above all else, it'll be interesting to see how technically this goes. I feel like uh, Bunsen Honeydew and Beaker here, like <laughs> like with an experiment going on. Uh, there's yes. a, so so full disclosure, as we always have been so, super transparent with our audience. Uh, you know, th- this is a this is an endeavor for us. So um, the way it's going to work is that hopefully. Um, and to my understanding, um, this is, you know, it, it should all go according to plan, is that uh, this will be much like any other podcast you guys listen to. You will only be hearing our voices uh, with it, and uh, you can listen along um, as a podcast, but you can listen along with the movie. So uh, you'll only be hearing our voices. You won't be hearing the audio track. So it gives you guys an opportunity to um sync along with the movie and watch the movie along with us um at your discretion if you if you wish and then uh, in a minute i will get to the specifics of uh things like when you should press play um and anything like that so um and again if you want to just listen to it uh as a podcast uh it should definitely still be entertaining and i'm sure I'm sure Will and I will have many tangents along the way as well as we usually do. Yes. So um, and th- this but, will this will I, be, and it will also involve both Nick and I doing a simultaneous press play. Which, by you know, at this point in the year that has been the year of you know Netflix party and and synchronized watching um, within our circles, we still not have quite gotten the craft down of. Um, multiple people being able to press play at the same time <laughs> yeah it's, 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 thank, it's thank god that the that the disney plus uh newest group watch edition which we tried out the other week uh, only requires one person to press play like that is kind of a godsend in that respect absolutely so nick is there anything you want to say leading off into this movie before i uh give the instructions and we uh talk away First of all, if you're on, if you're Honeydew, then I'm Beaker, right? So I'm the one that's going to be horribly <laughs> damaged to somehow during this crazy experiment. I think so because, like, I've mostly you know been the tech person, and uh, yeah. and I, I you have also been witness to the many um, concoctions uh, of uh, wire spaghetti that has happened with uh, making this show possible. <laughs> yes. So, yes. Uh, so yeah. So at, at any in at, at any moment, um, if you hear a, a big steaming noise. Um, that is not the quality of the podcast, but rather steam actually coming out of Nick's head, uh, Beaker style. <laughs> so uh, that's something. Um, so you know, and maybe I'll edit it out, but maybe that's just kind of the raw content all of you are looking for. Yeah, it also stands to reason that that the I don't think Bunsen and 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 uh, uh, Bunsen and Beaker are are uh, underrated, but I think their segments of the Muppet Show I think are very underrated. Okay, so that that's um, the sign where we need to start getting into the show before Nick gets on yeah. a Muppet tangent. Uh, hey, that hey <laughs> the Muppets franchise that's another possibility for the future. Will all right, so let's get into this. Uh, the first James Bond film, Doctor No. So. Uh, Nick and I are actually watching uh, the same um, copy of the film, which is Dr. No, the um, Blu-ray. Um, it is part of the um, James Bond uh, collection set, whatever whatever it is. 
Yeah, the and, general release that you'll find now. Yeah. The, it's the general release version of Doctor No, but it is included in most, of, like in the Connery set and in the Bond 50 set and in the whatever modern kind of full collections they have. This is pretty much the standard Blu-ray disc for Doctor No. Right. So where we are right now, we are uh, right at the beginning of the film. So if you bring up the your DVD menus or your DVD player's time code, it should be at complete zero. Um, you'll be looking at a black screen. Uh, Nick and I and uh, are going to press play at the uh, same time. I'm going to signal to Nick, and that will be the signal to the rest of the audience to press play. So it'll be three, two, one, play, and we're pressing the button on play. Is that is that clear to the audience and That's- to you, Nick? Yes, it's always important to make sure that they know when, right? Yeah, right, it's not That's like a- three, two, one, not on the one, not after one, not after play, on the play. So three, two, one, play. And then, so to you, three, two, one, press button, as I say play. Yes. <laughs> Does that make sense? Yes. Now, now why... No, no, that is where the thinking can kind of get weird sometimes, so it's good to know mm-hmm. that answer. Uh, so, and then the first thing that should pop up is the uh, MGM logo. Uh, so, and, and, and you know, through our context, uh, you know, you'll kind of know where we are in the movie. Uh, sporadically, we'll um, just kind of give reminders of where we are throughout the movie. But ultimately, it'll all end up being a huge conversation of Dr. No anyway. So, I, I, I'm confident that it'll work out. So, yeah. Nick, are you ready to go? I'm ready to talk about some Dr. No. All right, everybody, ladies and gentlemen, and all fans, please get your remotes ready. Point them at the, I don't know what everybody's lighting remote LED situation is, but you know, the, the more direct and close to that DVD player, or Blu-ray player, or 4K player, uh, what have you. You know, maybe even on your digital release. I know it's all kind of wonky, but hopefully everybody can follow along. So everybody it get ready. It's on Amazon Prime right now. <laughs> all right, so everybody get ready. Uh, this is Dr. No. So Nick, we are going to play the film at 3... Two, one, play. Ah, MGM, who did not release this movie, by the way. <laughs> um, just uh, there we go. Harry Saltzman and Albert United. Brown. A very minimalist beginning, which is interesting, but the barrel opening but nonetheless. St- you still get, I mean, again, it's kind of hard to think that the iconic moments of this series are set up from moment one of this series, uh, which is, you know, the theme, the the gun barrel, kind of this opening sequence. Obviously, the cold open uh, isn't established until the next movie, which is uh, From Russia With Love, but you still kind of get this very distinct feel and look to what would be the James Bond look and feel uh, in general for the rest of its franchise. And I think, you know, we talk about Dr. No being the first, I think so much of really other elements of the franchise come into from Rush with love, but you really do see the beginnings of this entire franchise right here uh, in this opening sequence. 
Yes, as I would call, on the other hand, the electric company sequence, as as I've always. (laughs) One of the the first little, one of the first kind of jokes in in podcast history. It it is interesting when you just think about the entire legacy. I mean, we've talked about it on the show, the legacy of the Bond opening and just how minimalistic it is. And now as we get into the dancing ladies and and, and gentlemen here... um, it uh it takes a hard turn into something that is visually what we're like uh, what we're more used to but maybe not musically. <laughs> yes. Well, we get the you know Maurice Binder did all of these really through, um, uh, be, uh through, uh, License to Kill. So, you know, he establishes sort of this very basic idea. And again, I think. For most of love and especially Goldfinger is where like Maurice Binder really finds his feel for the opening title sequences. But and and I think the thing is too. I mean, I'm sorry to interrupt, but this is (laughs) this three blind mice. This is one of those like, all right, maybe (laughs) maybe we've moved on in 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 good ways too. I don't know if this is this this is the one if you if when you are a new Bond fan and you go back and watch this, this may be your first like what. Is happening? Yeah, they're they're really uh, and and young as it really is establishing that they want to kind of get this Jamaican feel uh, for the movie, um, which features in other songs throughout the film as well. Um, there's another song uh, that's very big in terms of Jamaican uh, musical lore uh, that kind of appears later. But the the one thing I was going to say about Maurice Binder earlier is, um, you know, it's just. Uh, one of the things about this franchise is how much of those people do all that work all the way through, you know, these other bonds and these other bond movies. Like we saw Peter, uh, Peter Hunt's um, name come up earlier as well. And he of course was a major editor that kind of really distinctly gives that editing uh, for the bond films up through uh, his directorial feature in, in uh, honor majesty secret service. But we, you know, Maurice Binder and, Peter Cubby Rockley and Peter Saltzman, John Barry. We really see that a lot of these early partnerships within Eon come into this movie. And I think that really defines Bond as well is the longstanding reuse of not just actors, but the behind the scenes crew. And I think, again, it's all established here in Dr. No. Also a small note, the, the fact that the three blind mice men um, end up being assassins uh, makes up for... Yes. Maybe the confusion of the opening. Gets you right on into the action and, and the mystery of what's uh, happening in the movie. Strangely. It, it is also interesting to think of this as like, you know, obviously right now you would be looking at this as a Bond movie. So you, you come into it with that context. But it's, it, it's almost – and it's impossible in a way to think about looking at this and you don't know any of the Bond legacy – you don't really know what's going on. So it's very strange in that way. Like, you know, so a lot of this is like you have zero context for really what's happening thus far. But just because of the nature of it being the first Bond movie, you're coming in and it's like, oh, you know, it's going to get to the Bond business eventually. Yes. But to, to think this is the first one and the, this is maybe the, the first, mo- the only movie in the Bond franchise where you don't have any of that context. Like when exactly. it originally came out, and again, I think it's it's this is among you know as a, as a first movie, 
you know, obviously one of the reasons they picked Dr. No is what his simplicity from a, from a shooting and a making standpoint was very minimal locations, very minimal action uh, in terms of that kind of lower budget for, for the period. But I also think that one thing to note and establish about Dr. No is its lower key nature um, in many ways. And you even get that from the beginning, just even with the three blind mice and the kind of the three blind mice assassins and that whole kind of sequence. And even here where we're kind of seeing a real kind of inner workings of MI6, which we really don't get to see in much of the rest of the franchise. I'll be until- honest, a lot of this movie will be a little bit of a reminder for me, which is why I'm glad we're rewatching it because some of the details of it are a little fuzzy to me. So as you said that, like a scene like this is something that, frankly, you rarely see in, in a Bond movie. Because like, we, when we get into like looking at the inner workings of MI6 outside of Bond, it's really like kind of concentrated to the M and Q stuff. And I think that stuff does get established a little bit more in like the Brosnan and Craig era. But once you kind of get past Dr. No and to an extent from Russia with love, you kind of really do get a sense of that. They kind of just kind of par it down, excuse me, par it down to get a focus on bond. Mm-hmm. And this is, we're getting to what may be like one of the, you could argue this is one of the top five character introductions in cinema history, just from its iconic nature. And, and Young really delivers on directing this sequence in a way that you know that this is a big deal and that Bond as a character is a big deal. It, it, it feels like a presentation of this is your new icon right here. And again, you don't, on one hand, you don't really think about it going back uh, you know, like when you're making it, you're probably not thinking that way, but you get the sense that the way that Young shoots this sequence where the Bond, the reveal of Connery as Bond is at the perfect moment and the Bond, James Bond, it just feels like he knew that he had something on his hands here, both with Connery and with Bond as a character. And again, Bacharach, the game that nobody knows how to play anymore. <laughs> Oh, here it comes. Here we go. Sylvia Trench. Oh. There we go. Everything about it, it's just him saying the name, the theme coming in right there. Even the the presence of Sylvia Trench in in kind of a contrast to Bond. Like, everything about that is just, it's perfect. It's 100% perfect in introducing this character. I, I was I, I was reading. Um, it was funny. I was uh, listening to records today, and I, I came across the uh, Jurassic Park record, and I was reading the liner notes, and um, they they spent a lot of time talking about John Williams scoring the whole Brachiosaurus uh, introduction uh, scene in Jurassic Park, and and they talked about the importance of like you know you really want to give weight in introducing this thing, but not only weight, but you want to introduce it with the right tone. And in that case, it was they want to introduce it with majesty and not that it's like a giant monster. And it made me think about how there really is an art to really introducing something. It's one of the it's one of the times in movies where you have to really give yourself over to cinematic language and forgo realism a little bit. Um and and you may know this, Nick. I mean, I, and I've kind of said it about several, not a lot of movies, but some movies, is that one of my biggest pet peeves in movies 
is when something, especially in franchise movies, when like a character gets introduced, but their first time on screen doesn't feel important. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, a, a quick example, I know you and I have kind of gone back and forth on the X-Men movies, but there's a moment in, I think, X-Men Days of Future Past where it's like, you know, it's supposed to be at the time the last movie that like Magneto and Professor Xavier are on there, but then they just kind of like show up in like a in like a like a, a medium close up, like coming out of like a, a Wait, out of I a spaceship. The hat throw, Will. The hat. Uh, yeah, throw. it's the famous hat throw. There it is. But um, but yeah, but there's no, you know, it, it really bums me out when you know these characters who are supposed to seemingly have an important role in the movie don't have like an important intro or at least like a, a thought out introduction. So there really is an art to establishing and introducing a character in your movie for the first time. And and I think that after a couple, after a while of thinking about this, I think that um, th- this is a worthy in, uh, introduction of Bond. Uh, I mean, and, 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 and you know, it goes all the way up to this scene, like, you know, with the, with the hat throw. So it shows like kind of like this comedic cavalier attitude and this, uh, relationship with Money Penny, which is fresh here and gets you know, you know, is a little bit tiring uh, over the course of the next couple movies. But you know, the, we'll yeah. get to that. But I've always liked that, that door. I've 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 always been. A, I love this door. Yeah. I I popped hard in the theater when this door appeared at the end of Skyfall. Uh, I was so into like, oh my god, it's it's the door. Um, but I will say that about Money Penny going back, I know we're we're a little bit past that scene. Um, but uh, I think you're right that it's very much part of that introduction. And I do think those kind of very early money penny Connery ones are very good. I think Dr. No and from much with love, I think both feature kind of top tier bond and money penny stuff. And then I think that again, I think they kind of rediscover it uh, and, and kind of replay with it around the more era in the way, way. Uh, I mean, I way. mean, frankly, other movie, like especially the Brosnan movie, some of those earlier ones find fun ways to play with it. Like, yeah. um, you know, they they kind of play that note, the same note, a little too many times going into the next couple movies. But they, but they course correct that relationship. It, I think it is funny, and I don't, I don't mean this in a. It's funny that my mental image of Money Penny, uh, or the, the Lois Maxwell Money Penny, is very much in that kind of Roger Moore era. So even when seeing her on screen, I was kind of taken aback by just how young she looks because it's just, and I think you kind of get that, especially with Connery and, and, and once we get Desmond Leland's not in this movie, but in the next movie, you kind of get that always, they're always kind of an older kind of feel to them. Whereas I feel like it was interesting to go back to kind of this era of Money Penny. Uh, and of course we can't mention, um, we have to mention M as well. And, and the role that he plays mm-hmm. in the Bond movies, um, and I think that this one is very much kind of on like the way that you need to know what M is. M is the guy giving him the mission. Now, Will, this is the first major Boothroyd. Uh, I was going to say, I thought the first major uh, appearance of the suspenders. <laughs> yes. Uh, no, but this is the first quote-unquote Q, obviously not played by Desmond Leland in this movie. And not many people would know that that character is actually in uh, this movie. Um, but it's not until the next film where where the Q that we know and love kind of comes uh, into play. And 
And one of the things I should mention, too, just again, just going into the kind of the fun fact nature of this is this is all stuff that um, is a holdover from Dr. No being a book sequel, Um, you know, not just a book sequel to Live and Let Die in terms of basic content. But uh, uh, this was a direct sequel to From Russia with Love in terms of the Bond canon. So uh, certain elements happened in that in those books where. you know, Bond ha- is required to get a new gun in the Walter PPK. Uh, so it's interesting, again, that kind of relationship that the Bond films hold with its source material and how throughout the course of the franchise, you do get to see how it mixes elements of the original source material uh, and, and into movies that go all uh, different orders. There, there was a line a little bit earlier that I thought was interesting uh, that M says, um, you know, they have this conversation about, you know, arming Bond um, with like the gun of, of their choosing. But he has a little line there where he says um, something to the effect of like, you know, there's been a drop in double O casualties uh, of like the agents, uh, you know, that um, – uh, since I've been head of the organization. So, you know, it, I, that, that is kind of like an interesting character motivation on M that I don't think is really explored because we kind of like, to a certain degree, always more follow a more contentious, um, even if it becomes like a, like a, like a contentious uh, like partnership where everybody's on the same side, but there's a little bit of antagonism. So that idea that like, you know, he takes pride in the fact that like, listen, like, you know, I'm not getting my men killed adds a, that's an interesting layer. I, I think to that character. Yeah, I, I would agree. And I think that some of the most fun M stuff is when they kind of play with that. Like I always go back to that M moment in Moonraker um, where, you know, Moore's bond has just kind of seemingly royally screwed up, but you know, M gives him sort of the benefit of the doubt. Uh, and I like that kind of characterization that, yes, they have a contentious relationship, but he kind of trusts and, and plays with them. <laughs> classic. Don't you classic, hate it when this happens? <laughs> again, sort of the classic sort of I, I love that this is kind of a, this movie's establishing the spies genre. And yet it's already kind of playing with kind of the knowledge of spies and spy tropes, because it's like the whole thing is like he has the suspicion in his home and the big build up in the action. And then it's just Miss Miss Trench playing some golf uh, in his room. And I, I feel like it's fun that, again, I think like Terrence Young is such a really perfect director to, to introduce this, not just this character, to, to really establish this genre of the, the spy genre that we spent so much time talking about as kind of its own thing. And I think he's ha- he's just having a lot of fun with the, with the way that he's putting together this it, movie. It, it is interesting how at the time you play this scene of like him, uh, like lurking around the apartment and something suspicious, uh, only to be you know uh, subverted. It is interesting how they played in, in 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 this era of film where it's a little bit more lighter, whimsical, and like ooh, what's going to happen? It's exciting. You know, um, if you did that today, they definitely play it like a lot darker and sinister, like, you know, because danger could be around the corner. So it's like it, it is inter- like that definitely is more of like an of the time difference of how you deal with a scene like that, I think. This is your favorite use of the Bond theme right here. Yes, this is. The- yeah, when it's just like wait, not quite here. It's when he gets to the apartment or the hotel yeah. is when it becomes yeah. this too is much. the second best when he's yeah, just yeah. walking through the airport. 
He also had a line earlier where you know she's in you know her you know she's in her the shirt and she's like oh I he's like I hope I it's like I must have done the wrong thing and he's like oh you did the right thing just at the wrong moment and it's a funny <laughs> line but you know this also marks um you know especially this early bond it, it's a fairly you know Connery's early bond is a fairly classy bond. Uh, yeah. like you know, maybe I'll be corrected as we go on, but I remember him being very classy, which is one of the reasons I think he kind of goes back to that and never say never again. Um, but yeah, there is definitely a lot of that, you know, uh, some of the machismo that you may attribute to the later Bond about, like you know, being a little bit rough around the edges. Um, I don't remember as much in this movie as more it's so in the, in the next bit couple lower, ones. Lower key in this movie, but I also think again. That is something that uh, you could argue comes from just the way the Bond franchise is made with with the changing directors, because I think you could establish that, you know, Terrence Young's, the, the first two Terrence Young films, the Doctor Known from Watch With Love, do generally portray Bond as kind of classier to an extent. Um, and then it's once you get into Guy Hamilton's Goldfinger, and, and, and I've, I've said plenty over the podcast of the way that the Guy Hamilton films use their female characters, but it's really once you get to Goldfinger, uh, where sort of that element of Bond really comes into its own. So um, uh, it is interesting, again, to go back. But again, this movie in general, there's a very much lower key, like true kind of, at least it's the first half of it, sort of a true sort of spy nature with, with people following people and mysteries about who's who's on whose side. Because like, again, we're kind of establishing that mysterious man, which we'll we'll get to introduce to later. Um, it's also interesting, that you, the, and also the movie is demonstrating itself as relatively light in tone. I mean, obviously the con the the content is uh you know somewhat more like mature on, on the surface level, but you know the way in which it's conducting itself is like you know this is a fun spy movie. And, yes. you know, we often now consider the fun spy movie or the fun movie as jokes every here and every here and then or like, you know, fun set pieces all the time. But sometimes a fun movie is just like, you know, it, it's not like when you look at something like what like the spy who comes in from the cold, like that's like a dark movie, yeah. like a dark, serious movie. And, and this one's look at, in that hat, though. Oh, yeah. No, definitely. I mean, I, I, I am team bring back the hat. That's good. Can we get that hashtag started? Bring, bring back the hat. Hashtag bring back the hat. Hashtag more core. How did he get over there? Oh no no no, that's the same car. Sorry, I thought he I thought he got in the other car that passed. I remember in uh, seventh grade, I had to do a project on the 60s, and I they let me show this scene. Um, but they were very much like, you can't show any actual violence, so I just have to show Bond being cool. And so this is kind of as far as I could go with showing, like, action stuff. That's just a fun fact about me, so, you know, nothing to do with the movie. Yes. Throw him out of the car, Bond. <laughs> Classic.
As another underrated element of of, of Connery is just the the way he throws a punch. Um, I know that that was one of the things uh, that got him the Bond jobs is from his his bar fight at the end of Darby O'Gale and the Little People, but that's a nice punch that he throws right there. It, it, it's also just when you think about it. Oh no! Oh no! He he took it. He took the cyanide. Um, what I was going to say is, like, it, it's also just a very interesting look for Bond. It's just kind of more gentlemanly coat and hat type of thing, whereas, like, the more of the suit and tuxedo look has kind of become the more Bond it really look. Wait, here, here we go. Here. <laughs> and again, it, it, it's kind of like like th- this movie is playing light. It, it, it's definitely it, it's having fun at times, and it, it, it's playing its cards of what type of movie uh, it is. Yeah, uh, I was gonna say that the kind of that hat and sort of the suit look really kind of makes it feel like a job for Bond, right? He like he's going to the office, quote unquote, to to find a job and. You know, we, we the the main kind of pull of this movie is the the mysterious disappearance of this agent Strangeways, and so sort of the the mystery that's surrounding it, and again, sort of presenting this early Bond with the more mystery element, even before kind of getting into the the big crazy, you know, Claude Hand, Doctor No, in the world of supervillains, I think really gets to to establish just the spy aspect of the story, and I think again. Just very smart filmmaking, and in many ways, very smart. That Doctor No was the first movie to to really introduce the audience to this this world. You're not going to be able to resell that house with the blood patch. You got to clean that up. Uh, you'll need to get rid of that chair yeah. for sure. <laughs> Another little uh, interesting bit, just kind of watching this scene, is this almost kind of detective nature of Bond, which which is really interesting and. And I don't know, like, I guess technically the Bond movies still keep this, you know, he's always going to places and he's piecing things together. But you never get this sense of that, like, it's kind of like, and maybe this is the way that the movies are paced or framed or whatever, is like, you, you just kind of feel like Bond gets there and he finds, like, a clue that's usually there for him for movie purposes, and then he, like, you know, then he moves on to the next thing. Whereas, like, if you watch a scene like this, it kind of seems like, okay, they're sending him to this place, and he's looking around, and he's making a judgment call, like, oh, well, you know, if the blood is this type, then, okay, that was her, and, oh, here's the radio, make sure you keep that off. Like, there, there's a level of, like, you know, this is why, you know, he's 007, too. He's not just, like, a good at throwing a punch. He can actually deduce these things as well. I think that it's also going through sort of, I think it's also speaks to one of the very unique things about the Bond franchise is, is because it's not 
necess- it's it's a long-standing franchise that isn't necessarily continuity heavy and doesn't isn't shy about changing things up in terms of the actor and and the in the character in some respects where i think many of the aspects of the bond franchise again are the ebbs and flows and we see it most distinctly in sort of the action and like world domination plans where you're like you know you'll have like a, a doc, you know, you'll get from Dr. No to, to Thunderball and then kind of, you know, get really big and then kind of honor majesty secret service kind of pair, pairs it down a little bit, or you get through like the beginning of the more era where like, you know, live and let die are very much lower key to where you're getting to Moonraker, the big high, and then you're getting to uh, uh, for your eyes only, which is the big low. But what, but my point is, is I think that aspect of the Bond character is also something that ebbs and flows depending on the time and, and the movie and the director. Well, it, it's just that little bit there with, like, the hair and, like, you know, even yeah. though that's kind of absurd, that wouldn't work, I don't think. But he, you know, him putting the hair there is, like, I'm assuming, like, if it opens, then, you know, he'll know. But that's just, like, a little thing you, you don't really see in a lot of other Bonds, like that kind of, right. like, Boy Scout nature to it, or at least that yeah. understated Boy Scout nature. Right. Like you, you get it again. I think each one kind of gets a piece of it, but maybe not the whole is what I'm kind of saying. Like, I think you definitely see certain aspects of it in the way Moore does his investigations and, and certain things that Dalton does in the living daylights and stuff like that. But like, yeah, it's the most distinct here in this first film. It is um, also distinct, of course, to really note that the the movies uh, mostly taking place in in Jamaica, which of course was something that was important to to Fleming, um, and does kind of get to establish, in one sense, the the world traveling nature. Uh, you know, the 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 scenic views you can see kind of here, like the mountains, ocean in the background, that kind of work to that and it's not like the biggest and the 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 most beautiful areas that bond will see uh in the course of this franchise but it does the, the when you really reflect on it and seeing like how those other movies turned out it really is sort of they made that right decision with dr no i think and, and i think it just does enough to get an audience invested in this character where once you start getting to the bigger and better things of from much with love and goldfinger and, and thunderball that you do gotta get to really sort of just get an establishment here of the character and and the world. Well, I, I mean, in. the other thing that's also interesting about it too at this point is that the mystery and the mission itself is relatively broad. Like you know, we're still not quite sure. Like obviously, you know, there's mention of this as MI6 and there's mention of the CIA and everything like that, and clearly. You know, he's like, you know, a secret agent working for a government. But there's not really a like a um, a definitive like this is where it fits in in the um, socio-political climate right now. So you you kind of get the sense that the, the, the franchise is starting on this foot that it's playing more in this more uh, political fantasy world or you know, this worldwide world of um, – uh, fantastical espionage and not like I mean like you know in these broad senses like where it's like oh everything is crazy but 
you know, you, you don't really quite have a grasp on like, you know, where are we going, you know, with this? What is Bond going to find? Um, there's enough where you know what the inciting incident is, and that's all you need to know to, um, you know, that uh, it's a very grounded inciting incident to get the the plot rolling. And then obviously we're going to find out that it gets into, you know, uh, super spy, super villainy later. But um, um, but it's interesting that 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 again, you know, kind of going back to an example like you know, the spy coming from in the cold is like clearly like a direct parallel to real world political issues where this quite isn't that. And it's also nice that you're right, kind of going back to, you know, we're taking place in a location that's not just like, oh, we're going to America or we're going to like, like Prague or something <laughs> like, right. you know, we're, we're going to some unique locations for this. And that kind of throws us off a little bit, I think. And of course the classic, this is a classic type of scene. Like, we're going to yes. help you. No, we're not going to help you. Well, I know what happens with people who are not going to help me. He said, bud, that's how you know he's an American. Here we go, boys. It's Felix number one. Man, even even like Felix gets like a like a cool entrance in this, this movie. I mean, this is still among sort of the best of the Felixes, and there is. I've always had this thought of what if Jack Lord did come back for Goldfinger, and you did have a little bit more of an establishment of the Felix character. Because I think the thing about the Felix character being someone who is different in every movie or almost every movie is. Unlike with Money, Penny, and Q, and Bond, and M, you 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 don't get that sense of what he's supposed to be because it's that character gets to most match the movie that he's in. And I do feel like Jack Lord just has this cool American aura to him, uh, especially that introduction with the with the sunglasses and kind of getting to to get Bond. Uh, I also want to mention real quick before we kind of if you have any other thoughts on on Felix, but. This jump up song is what I kind of alluded to earlier with with the really big Jamaican music. And this actually was sort of a a hit uh, even outside of the Bond franchise early on in, in, in the in the in the uh, history of the Bond franchise that that's not necessarily an original song. But they it was they were they were really getting into that Jamaican flavor and Jamaican uh What's the word I'm looking for? They're, they're really getting to the, the Jamaican mood and and trying to really establish themselves as being true to Jamaican culture. Especially because that was so important to Fleming and why he held Jamaican such high regard. Felix, uh, he, he kind of, in this movie, kind of reminds me of like um, Brad Pitt in like the Oceans movies. Mm -hmm. Like it's that kind of like, you know, because what you know, it's great about Pitt in those movies is that obviously it's Brad Pitt, but he he plays like a side character so well, like you know he almost brings so much energy and personality and attention to himself. But you're okay that like you know he's not like the center of attention. It's it's a very we interesting dynamic to place it in, but um, he's so American at the same time. <laughs> just like you know, he's like just like you know that he's just, like, the coolest guy on the block. And I, I think, like, this Felix kind of, like, has that energy to him. I, I um, And also the key about Felix is that, you know, 
he is one of those characters where like almost the least you know about him is like what you know not necessarily that there's an aura of mystery it's just you can you can just kind of imply what like his deal is like there's nothing really other special about him other than he's like full-grown american hero yeah maybe and again it can be kind of matched to the movie because there wasn't you know an actor that was attached to it Ooh, imagine like imagine like a mcconaughey as like a felix that would be excellent casting. <laughs> that would I be would awesome. love that. <laughs> because uh, all he mention- has to do is come in and be a sly, cool American. That's all he needs to do. But not, not that like, we, Felix we, is sly. Sorry, go ahead. I was just going to mention before we lose this character, just uh, even with this movie, just the reaction that Bond has to the camera flash um, and, and just the, the really distinctive, like, they're here on secrecy and there's going to be no means of them to be discovered. Uh, also, of course, that this this camera woman was just a flight attendant that they had on the way to Jamaica, and they were wondering if they wanted her to be in the movie as well. So, Jesus Christ! Bond's <laughs> just like, yeah, break your arm some that's, other time. That, that's not how you treat film, Bond. That's irresponsible. She also just took a shard of glass and cut his face. That's crazy. And he barely. And he barely reacted to it. Too. Yeah, that's you know. I guess he was that's... like, yeah, like, yeah, she's she's nuts. We're not gonna get anything out of her. That's the islands for you. He's like, I've been st- I've been stung by jellyfish there since I was five. <laughs> I do love this little bit that I, I I do always love about this movie is the level of patience Bond has. Like, I love how there is a line of like, he's like, come on, why can't we just go to the Island? And uh, like, you know, some of his little outbursts on the Island too. I, I just find very humorous. I like Trappy's water. Also, a good sand. name for an island. And now, and to, cut to the that's credits. That's the name of the movie. That's the name of the. Cue your, uh, cue your uh, Leonardo DiCaprio points at screen memes. Yes. All right. More action to be had here. People following Bond again. There is a real still mystery element, and we're starting to piece together little bits, especially with that sort of triumvirate between Jack Lord, Quarrel, and Bond. But there's still sort of, again, the mysterious character of Dr. No now appears, and, and why Strange Ways was investigating Crab Key. There's, there's a lot still to be, to be figured out, and again, works into getting that audience investment in the movie. Ah, uh, Professor Dent, who who uh, we'll see a little bit later, uh, plays an important role into that character of Bond, uh, the establishment of the character of Bond when he tries to kill him later in in the movie. Oh, I'm thinking about more scenes later, but we got to get to to this one right now. Again, uh, sort of the detective Bond. You know, this is a uh, Bond that is most Bruce Wayney in terms of just 
civilian sort of uh, investigations. Well, you know what's interesting is that as you go on, and I wonder if this is just kind of more of audience baggage versus what goes on in the film, but, you know, there there's n- not... Part of, like, the later Bonds films that is never quite the most intriguing part. Like, it may work for the purpose of the movie, but the whole notion that he is going into these situations, like, undercover and, like, you know, that, you know, you're right. Like, like this whole kind of Bruce Wayne nature to him that, like, he's infiltrating these very casual conversations hiding under your nose you know, the further you get in the Bond franchise, the, the the least interesting those scenes get, at least for me. And I don't know whether it's because, like, you know, the movies are having their cake and eating it, too, where, you know, he's saying his name and he's clearly just, like, you know, presenting himself also as a spy half of the time and people figure it out half of the time. But I Or I wonder if that is just the baggage of the franchise you're bringing into it, where you're just, like... You know, it's not like a superhero where that's part of it, where, you know, there's a dual identity. So the whole notion of him, you know, being undercover is always kind of a little laughable at times. Right. But but in in here it works, like, because you don't necessarily have that baggage and Connery pulls it off. Because another thing, too, is that so far Connery hasn't made like a real established, uh, heightened personality that Bond has later going on in the later film. So you kind of buy that Bruce Wayne quality to him. Yeah. It's interesting to kind of reflect on sort of that aspect of bond, the, the kind of smooth talker investigator. Cause obviously when you talk about like more, that's, those are the scenes that more preferred was when he got to use his, his words as opposed to his actions. Um, and I think that, you know, it's, it's a big part of, of Dalton's bond too, um, in both the way he treats Kara in, uh, the living daylights and, and Saunders to an extent as well in that movie. And also the way he infiltrates Sanchez in license to kill. Um, but I think again, it can be sort of a lower key aspect of the character, especially once you get into these films that have more heightened action and more bigger villains, where that does kind of get a little bit lost when you kind of have more distinct, you know, the the Blofelds and and the Strombergs and and the the, the Hugo Draxes of of the world as well. And uh, and then, and and this is kind of like I think the definitive. Okay, we're getting into the super spy world with very yeah. elaborate, like a. Uh, like looking uh, layers and rooms and stuff. Right. Again, the, the movie does a good job at, yeah, the movie does a good job of slowly building up to this, where the, the kind of general spy investigating and, and, and sort of that element of it and the, the people chasing people and kind of almost what you kind of know about spies. But then you get to this moment, um, which is which it's young shoots very like Hitchcockian with kind of the bars and the shadow. Um, and you really get the establishment of, oh, we're, we're dealing with, with bigger things here. And, and also um, like what's interesting about it too, is like, you know, with the, there, there's very subtle details, like the silhouette of the bars kind of gives like the whole like prison trapped, like feeling to it. If, if not like, you know, subliminally, you know, you get really no sense of what else is in this room. You just kind of hear this voice. 
and now we're just revealing like this spider. So th- there's kind of like th- these very specific details, but then also like kind of like a vague nature of where is he, who's talking to him. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it, 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 it's all. It's all interesting stuff, but it, it, it's definitely the definitive, okay, now we're in the super spy world. Yes. And, and you know, and, and now we're getting into the super villainy with, like, um, like take this spider that is just in this box right here. Okay, this is where the theme <laughs> gets, okay, not quite yet, but it's coming up. We don't have like any blue. score for the next scene and a half, so if we just play the theme through both of the scenes, that would well, be great. I think that is also the most distinct thing is that this movie, in a sense, doesn't technically have a score. If you go back into its history, is that the score is pretty much this theme by Monty Norman as arranged by Barry um, and sort of those Jamaican mu- music, like you know, Under the Mango Tree and, and Jumpin' and um, the Three Blind Mice song. So it really is sort of something that we that is very unique to this film, and it really speaks to the, you know, maybe it, it's kind of funny to see, but it also speaks to the the confidence in the theme in and of itself, um, to establish sort of a cool uh, uh, feeling for the character, um, and it, it really, I mean, again, Barry's kind of arrangement and his additions really sort of set him up to be the composer for the series you know up until you know view to achilles basically doing all of them with very few um skips along the way ah casual bond just sitting down for a drink But we, we're we're about to come up on one of our one of our few flourishes of score as we get to um, uh, th- this pretty famous or infamous scene from the film, depending on how he, you look at it. Um, but uh, the spider is here. Connery's really sweating here. Now that is that that's real or is that camera trickery right there? I th- it, it is real. Yeah, it is real. Okay. Cuz I think isn't there a shot in in this that's camera trickery? But Was that? No, I, no. I may be mistaken. Well, th- they were always very distinct on using as much I guess if you would call it practical animal effects as possible. Whenever they could get a chance to do it, they would they would use a real spider or a real shark. Does it really matter? Would have been even better if a shark was crawling up Connery right here. And we, yes, we do get one of the best. Wait, <laughs> one of the best parts of the score. The few. Oh, I, if there was the just one right more, if there was just one more, that would be great. It would be great because then I think you could just it would just go on to to, to infinity. It always like remi- if you did- it, it, it always kind of reminds me of um, remember that scene in Attack of the Clones when they try to kill Padme with like the little caterpillars 
and they like sneak yes. into the room. Like it always reminds me of that. Yeah. Yeah, just like concentration camps. <laughs> they were mysteries at the time, apparently. Yeah, but but it's like clearly if you're making the reference, like it's kind of weird that you would be flippantly like, I've heard rumors, but there hasn't been an official complaint. It's like, uh, I don't think the official complaint was the issue with concentration camps in the past. <laughs> uh <laughs> that's one thing you don't see nowadays are boxes and packages entwine and like you know rope i want to no. bring that back you know you know because it's call like, amazon will tell them you want the twine back is, is there like kind of is there kind of like a amazon classic you can sign up for where the packages you get are tied up in twine and rope don't give them a, uh, ideas for April Fool's Day next year. Also, also, what don't there's a don't crush logo on that. Who's crushing packages? Oh well, you've seen bad packages sometimes. Yeah, but like we we, I mean, but is it really that bad where you need to have a policy to don't crush? Because usually the crushing just kind of happens. It's just kind I, of I like. Think- it's just kind of weird. Like it's nobody's we, intentionally crushing these packages, or maliciously. We, we live in a golden era of ability to call out people for bad packages. Um, whereas I think in the sixties, you just you couldn't easily complain about a crushed package. Right. Right. Oh, so you really had to, like, you could just get away with it. Nobody would know. There's something about the Geiger counter sound that just creeps me out. Oh, I think it's one of those satisfying sounds, honestly. Yeah. Geiger counters, though. Don't you wish you could just casually order a Geiger counter, Will? Honestly, yes. But then kind of no, because then if I get it and turn it on... Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then and then it goes off. It's like one of those irrational fears. Like you just turn it on, and then it just completely goes off. And you're like, "Well, I've already been living here for a while." So, <laughs> I also uh, I, I, with the oh wait, sorry, trying- sorry. The, the 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 first mention of the quote unquote dragon, yes, which will get paid off later. Yeah, I just didn't want to mention that uh, again. Just kind of going into the facts. And the trivia that we we like to share on the Bonzilla podcast. Don't forget that the Quarrel character was originally established in the books in Live and Let Die. And he comes back for the sequel of Dr. No. But obviously, it's in reverse here where Dr. No uh, is the first film. And so within Live and Let Die, they have to introduce Quarrel Jr. Uh, and establish him as the son of Quarrel to kind of keep that character consistent. So, again, the way that the Fleming books and the Bond films kind of have to play with each other um, in in that sense. What about phones in the lobbies? 
it's it's funny just to think of just that element of just hey there's a phone in the lobby and you can just call you know oh Whereas yeah again, now like, we just have well, you just have cell phones now no you just needed phones in the lobby. Yeah. Uh, I like I see all Disney World pictures of those hotels and having phones in the lobby. So and stuff so like these that. so these guys so so they hooked up right Bond and and this lady they they hooked up, um right and and is that the implication there? Uh, the, he's going he so the implication is that he's going to come to her, but he has he has some suspicions okay, about okay, what's got it, got it, got it. What's happening? So it here. hasn't happened yet. He hasn't. No, it has not happened yet. Yeah, but like he's. I have to. I have to be honest. Some of it's like there's certain of these scenes that like obviously stand out, like with the Doctor No stuff so far and the tarantula and things like that. But there, there's some of these other like little details and shots that I, I am a little bit fuzzy on, which is why I'm kind of mm-hmm. glad we're rewatching it. But I mean, the biggest thing for me going back and seeing it as. Like I, I I like the way that Sean Connery's playing the character, but it really isn't that much. Like I I feel like once you get into like um, Goldfinger, that's when you start getting the 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 real big personality of the character. I I feel. I would um, I would argue that it really get, starts to get established in the from Russia with Love. Mm, I think okay, um, mm-hmm. especially with you know. Like, I think, like, honestly, as much as we joke about it, I think the gypsy fight goes a long way into establishing some of Bond stuff. I think his relationship with both Karen Bay and Tatiana in that movie. And I, I always go back to that scene on the train with uh, Replicant Shaw. Um, well, I mean, regardless, like what I'm what I'm trying to say is like the, but, this movie, it, it, I, he's not really paired with like an archetypal like personality quite yet he's just kind of like a normal spy on the job who's you know and connery's bringing his natural charisma into it there's there's none of those like oh that's a classic that's how james bond acts in this film everything so far is kind of like the proto version of that yeah Uh, terrence young's attention to detail of just really showcasing that car going all the way down that hill on fire and it's still amazing He has to walk the rest of the way. Actually, probably not. He probably still drove most of it. So see, well, this is her. She wasn't expecting him to show up. She was expecting the the other guy that was chasing him. So, again, Bond sort of has his suspicions. <laughs> That's good. Yeah. I think honestly that's kind of more of a fun way to kind of play sort of the he's going to you know he's having fun with a you know someone who he's suspicious with 
where just sort of like, you know, and it's like he didn't go into that kiss all too long when she said no. She he was basically like, okay, you know, respecting some boundaries at least. And then like the way he was holding that towel. <laughs> You have the face that can pull off wet, tied-up hair. What a weirdo. He still gets the girl, Will. And they're going down. Oh, Oh, yeah. yeah. I'm not sure if I was a fan of that edit. Sean Connery wants an Italian musical. It's just really funny how he just uses his real name. Mm -hmm. And it, it really like Bond very rarely has ever used an alternate name. Like, you can really count on, like, one hand, like, the number of times he's given a false identity somewhere. He, he, he and, and, and that's an establishment of, like, the general, the way that 007 works. Like, it's not as if, like, you know, people like Jack Lord or other double O agents that come uh, around his way, uh, you know, use false identities also so often. Uh, it's just, real, a, real it's just qu- a means of the world. Real quick, that was a real fun moment where he start, they start making out and he checks his clock, <laughs> checks his watch. He's like, I have the time. <laughs> what a dick. Um, oh, well, I was about to say something about about him. And, um, um, oh, man, I forgot. You're talking about checking his watch. Or, no, no, no. That that was just a fun bit, but there was there was something the else. The identity uh, thing. Um. Oh yeah, I was gonna say like uh, it would be funny if it's like the uh, Hunt for Red October bit, like you know where they zoom in while they are speaking. Was it Russian? And then it yes. like zooms out, like so you know, kind of like omnisciently, you see it uh, that they're speaking English. It would just be funny if it's like for the audience, he's saying James Bond, but to everybody else in world, he's actually they actually hear like a different name. <laughs> also, that was a pretty sick record player that that girl had. That was pretty part. good. Well, you know, it's always fun going back and watching these old movies. I was talking to my parents about this, about like how you know there you know there was a time where that is how you played music. Well, no, yes, yes, yes. Oh, you know uh, what it was? I, I was watching The Birds recently, and somebody just had their the their records just out out of the sleeve in like a holder, and then it's just funny that years later, where it's more of a vintage retro cool thing to do, like what we do, like we're fairly careful in how we take care of it. But when you think about it, like, you know, if, if that is just what the technology is at the time, 
then you would probably get complacent with it in the same way that if, you know, I'm sure all of us have scratch DVDs. Yes. Like, you know, so it, it is funny just to kind of like go back and look at that casual use of yeah. technology talk- that we, you know, love now. Talking about the music, it is interesting going back and really realizing how much they use underneath the mango tree, which is most you know, most associated with Honey Rider, who we're going to see in uh, just a few moments. But they, they've used it. They used it a couple times with, with Bond's first meeting with Quarrel and here when Bond's waiting for Professor Dent to to arrive. Uh, look at that old school solitaire, too. I've never quite had the patience to set up my own solitaire. Yeah, I mean, but, but that's the thing. is like we live in an era where it was always the free f- computer game or like you can get number of free uh solitaire is on your phone and right. it just makes it so much easier now this scene is really regarded both internally in terms of it with for for young saltzman and uh, broccoli and externally in terms of criticism and reflection on the movie as one of the most important scenes in this movie and in bond history to really kind of establish him as this sort of this this killer, it, 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 to use just the terminology of it, and and his ability to end up really shooting the professor as close to cold blood as you can get, like with still being in defense of himself. But but this is really a way to establish Bond sort of as as this element of the spy game, as sort of the the killer aspect, and and sort of. You know, again, him sort of killing the professor, even though he's out of bullets. Oh shit! Uh, I forgot about is, that, uh, that double tap. Yes, uh, establishes that element of Bond uh, that again comes and goes with the character of just how, you know, cold, you know, cold-hearted he can be in terms of that that element of of killing, but he uh, it really does establish Bond. In terms of him being a spy, and, but but and, but at the same uh, time, really I, kind of establishes. I, I I do I do like how it, it is. It's played kind of as a like a very tired kill. Like I I'm, I'm I don't know the exact word to use, but it, you know it's not like a oh yeah Bond's a badass because he he double tapped like. You know the bad guy, and he and he and he finally like just straight up shot a guy. Like there, there is a level of he's like, all right, like just got it. like you know it, it is kind of like this more nine to five, and it, it has this I got to take out the trash attitude to it. Like, and I, and, and I guess I'll, it and it, and it, it's a subtle little performance that Conneray gave right there that prevents him from just even though you would probably be on board anyway because he's an action hero but it, it keeps him from being just kind of like an irresponsible cavalier killer and yes. it, it, you know the kind of like you know the, the just the way that may have actually been one of my favorite little performances in the movie is this little it's really like it's part of the job it's just part of the job yeah. and i think it also establishes even more so that i think people take to that scene as bond being someone who you know has that kind of cold killer streak in him but I also think what that scene really establishes, and we've seen it a little bit over the movie, but I think that scene really establishes Bond as someone who can outsmart his opponents and, and can be ahead of their game. And I think 
it is an element of Bond that I think does kind of remain sort of consistent uh, throughout the character's history. And again, there are better uses of it. But we, I, again, like you can compare that to the ways in which like, you know, Moore tries to get ahead of, of Hugo Drax or, or, you know, the moment in The Living Daylights when, when Dalton realizes that the woman's, you know, not actually a true sniper. Like, I think there's that element of Bond being the outsmarter and being the guy who is like knows what's coming and is able to adjust to that um, is when Bond's at some of his most fun. Oh man. Shooting in water. Always a, always a blast. I like that. Uh, it's a tight blue shirt that that Bond has right here. Really showcasing the, also, his, also, his muscular nature. But are, are are those rolled up jeans? Like, what's going on with his pants? Well, I would assume because he was going in water that he did roll them up slightly. Yeah, I mean, but it's tough. Because to nothing's roll up worse jeans. than like the bottom of your, just the bottom of your jeans getting wet. Yeah, but like rolled up jeans are. A real compromise. I mean, I guess they're not real tight. I mean, well, those aren't really jeans. Those are more like... No, they're kind of bluish pants. Yeah, they're just like dress pants. And now we're introduced to... Did he really just sleep in like a nook in like the the sand? Wait, we we gotta mention that this iconic shot... You know, again, like we were introduced to Honey Rider here. And Will, you do make a good point if he did just sleep underneath the tree right there yeah but but this is truly you know their true introduction of the bond girl um and and many you know honey rider just makes an impression on people and you know there's an element of it being the first it's an element of her you know her look and uh um her introduction again there is a sense of even just that brief moment of her stepping out of the ocean like that with the song is another, it feels like a big introduction. It feels like this is an important character. And uh, Ursula Andress is just iconic in that role with, with uh, her conch shells and the, the well, okay. Theme. No need, no need to get dirty, Nick talking about her conch shells. And even here it's you? like, yes, honey, I don't know if honey writer is the absolute strongest character, but even her, not being necessarily afraid to, to draw a knife on this guy. Um, you yeah. know, it, it, it does establish her as having some gumption uh, as a character, which I think is nice. But of course, uh, can't compare to a role in Casino Royale 67, Will. <laughs> Now remind I mean, again, me now like, now uh, remind me of the story of her dubbing again. What what was the deal behind that? I forgot. Uh, so they did the Bond team at this time, especially within this Connery era, did a lot of sort of dubbing in a way that is not necessarily so. The way they would dub, and I, I would have to remember who the specific uh, woman was, but the way they would dub is is they would try to have someone like match the performance and match the um, the speaking tone. So they didn't want to like, 
make it more necessarily clear in terms of like, oh, we're going to dub her with like an American accent or something like that. But just for, for a clearer audio, they would try to kind of match what Ursula was, was actually doing in these scenes. And uh, we get the same thing later with, with Gert Frobe in um, Goldfinger and uh, a couple of the other women uh, throughout the franchise as well. Um, so, you know, uh, Nikki Vandersil uh, was sort of the resident, like, uh, voice actress for, for Eon. Um, but one thing to think about Ryder is, uh, I, I know, uh, I actually was recently re-listening to our Casino Royale 1967 episode just for, for fun. And it, it strikes to remind people that this movie it, in and of its own caused, uh, you know, was a big factor in Ursula Andress being named the most beautiful woman in the world by, by you know, sort of those magazines that would say, you know, you know, we have like sexiest man alive and sexiest woman alive now. But like back then, it was a big deal to be like Ursula Andress is considered to be the sexiest woman in the world. And it's all kind of predicated off her performance and her look in this Bond film. Connery has a good kind of peaking look, I think. And I think that's also important to his bond. He can Connery knows how to peek around a corner and, and peek <laughs> over a hill very well. <laughs> We're gonna throw the nukes now. So wait, not the dogs. They're gonna go all the way across. Hey, it's a crab at Crab Key. Crabs are strange animals. Like if you see a crab, like you feel like, well, that's like kind of like a spider. I should be afraid of that. But you really, I guess you really shouldn't. They're not really gonna do anything to you. We have like whole houses of food. That's one of my favorites. <laughs> he was uh, so I, I just always amused that he's so bummed out. Like he's like, I thought you I thought there was gonna be a dragon. <laughs> yeah. And he's always like, That was a machine gun. What are you talking about? The biggest this like I want the alternate version of this movie where it does turn out to be like a dragon and and like you know it's more about Bond finding like I believe in dragons now than like actually stopping Dr. No. Well, it's just funny because what's so absurd and kind of funny about this moment is like they're legitimately having and now that given this is the second time watching this movie, they're having a legitimate conversation of whether it is a dragon or not. But there's nothing else in this movie that would imply that that is where this is going. So it just kind of comes across as like kind of just like a weird off kilter moment in the film, which I'm which I'm fine with. But it, it is funny. Yeah, I would be so uncomfortable in those like wet bottom half of of pants. I, I, you know, I'm, I'm always looking for comfort, but that just does not look comfortable. 
Well, he's just sealed in there. Like, you know, he's he, he's yeah. all tucked in. It's a nice waterfall, though. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I'm always, I mean, and, and it, it kind of goes to show you, like, about how really impressive the pr- production design and the locations are in From Russia With Love. But even for the first film, the exotic, um, kind of island locations are, are are pretty pretty impressive. Yeah, I think that the testament of the Bond team to really doing their research, even from moment one, and I, I think just the passion of of Broccoli and Saltzman, and again, just uh, Young using the environment really well. I think just is, you know, you just have to go like everything after this is still trying to top it. And when they shoot like well, Istanbul, but, but, but you know what's also in, interesting is that most of the Bond films, when we think about all like the big action set pieces and and moments in Bond that we like, they are very much like um, uh, like these first world settings. Um, you know, in, in terms of like you know, they are very much like cities and um, and even if they're not cities, they're like complexes and like you know the mountains and things like that and compounds and stuff like that so it's interesting when you go into this film it's mostly just very subdued island settings uh that are uh slightly you know if they are part of civilization like like island civilization but then you kind of like quickly pivot into this you know complete like native island uh, uh, situation so it, it, it is interesting kind of like when you when you look at like the polished nature of bond films and the it, like that we know and love that this is the first one that it, it's going it's like, to an exotic location right away and, can, then, and then and sticking to it too you can even compare it directly to the differences in the way they use jamaica here and the way they kind of use that area like the bahamas area in thunderball where they make it feel like a much more modern sort of area with you know much more of the hotel and sort of the the, the nightlife there whereas here yeah i mean Dr. And, the, and the films going forward definitely like lean into a more slightly exaggerated uh celebration of the you know the culture that they're in where they, i mean this is pretty subdued like much like bod himself other than the super spy villainy and dr no that we get into uh, I mean, the uh, honestly, the Doctor No stuff may be the most kind of like um, exaggerated archetypal stuff, whereas everything else is kind of more yeah. of a grounded, if not fanciful, spy film. Mm-hmm. I love when they ever they do like something we just heard there, which is just the kind of like the very low key version of the Bond theme. And I think we we talked about this too in our in our music episode with Kenny is that. That's one of the brilliant aspects of the Bond theme, and I think you get to see it more again as the films go on. But wait, whoa, whoa! Can we take a look at this like skull that they drew? It's a it's this very yeah, Cartoon Network <laughs> character concept art. Skull. Evil Con Carne. Yeah, that's yeah, exactly what it looks like. <laughs> um, but it, I, I just love what what's great about the theme, and you heard it there a little bit. Is just the the myriad of ways and aspects of that theme. You know, you could do the like that do 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 and you could just that can just be like little transition. Whereas like, you know, you have the da 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 and like kind of the more guitar stuff. Sorry. You can kind of really mix and match how the theme looks. Oh yeah. No, absolutely. 
they're still having a conversation of whether this is a dragon or not. Like dragon tracks, really? It's just a very odd <laughs> like thing in this movie. It really is bizarre. <laughs> You may have noticed the conches I had earlier. I also want to mention that you can see a little bit of that hairy chest peeking under the, the blue of Connie's oh, yeah. shirt. Well, you need to know he's a man. Yeah. My, fam- my only family are the seashells from beneath. Wherever there were seashells. Oh. (laughs) Called it. We also went to Antarctica for some reason. My father really believed there were shells there. That's, you know, that may not have been one of his finest moments. Oh, I forgot about this. Oh, I completely forgot this part. (laughs) Oh, damn. (laughs) Wait, I'm sorry. Bond's reaction to that story. (laughs) Because, like, I, I actually had this moment... I forget like I was watching something, but like when somebody like drops like a real big bomb in a movie, like, oh, by the way, I was probably assaulted and then I got back at him by by uh, with a slow death by spider. Like that's a big bomb to put on somebody like just in a casual conversation. And usually they just move on in the conversation. And I love how Connery was just like. Jesus, <laughs> just at this moment, like, what, what yeah, did this I, I, girl I, just unload on me? I really remembered, like, the, oh, Dr. No might have killed my father thing, but, like, the... Oh, the, I completely forgot about all that other backstory. The, the, the potential assault, and... But, again, I guess it, it does go to show you kind of how Honey Rider's character is, that, again, she's not someone who, you know, is against killing someone with the Black Widow spider. Yeah, she was just uh, against him killing with a knife or whatever. So here's or, where we get back into like the real super villainy. Like, you know, now we're kind of delving back into like okay, here is like this like weird fire-breathing tank and um yeah. It, it it's interesting that like, you know, the Bond franchise has such, like, a dicey history with, like... This, because when you think about it, like, it's a relatively... And again, lighter in tone. But it's a relatively grounded spy film that when the villainy and the shit starts to hit the fan, that's when they introduce the more fanciful stuff. And I think that may be a level of what we complained about in the in the Craig movies is that they've completely just whiffed on that. Um, and you know, kind of their, uh, them fixing it is a little bit too little too late at times, but 
you know, it's kind of also why I think a lot of people, oh, shoot, yeah, I forgot. He just lit that person up. Um, but it is kind of like, you know, why I think we have talked about on the podcast why we um, gravitate to films like Kingsman because it leaned into that, like, okay, well, the spy game does have fanciful stuff in it. And they and now they really lean to the, that hardcore. But um, there is a level of that the James Bond films do have a certain charm when it's, like, grounded, and then when the the real stuff starts to hit the fan, then it is more fanciful stuff. Yeah, I do want to commend uh, the, the paint job on the tank, by the way. The teeth are a great touch. Well, that's what I mean. It's, like, it, it's completely, like, why does it have teeth? There's no real reason why it should. And also, I want to commend that that one henchman called Honey Rider a dame. It's like, you come out and the dame too. Oh, wow. She did hit him. Yeah. They got their licks in at least. Well, it's nice to see some competent henchmen, though, when you think about it. Yes. Yep. No, uh... Like, look, it's no. a ridiculous tank. <laughs> it's a, it's ridiculous. It, it's awesome. And it's not... Yeah. Dude, it's not even, like... It actually is hollowed out. Like, it is like a little mouth. Mm-hmm. I love it. But you know if they did that in the Craig movies, it would be, like, as realistic as it could look... With the exception oh, of that it has a flamethrower on it. Like, they yes. would try to make it, like, like you know, cool, but it, would, it, 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 it wouldn't look as crazy mm-hmm. as it does now. Yeah, yeah. Or, but also, like, you could imagine, like, like in the peak of those more movies that they would have just made it an actual, like, dragon-looking thing, too. <laughs> like, I think there's, a, there's a, definitely an ebb and flow of just, like, the, the level of ridiculousness throughout the franchise. <laughs> yeah, it would have been like one of those like it would have been like the same thing as like those that rhino from Ace Ventura. Doctor No's <laughs> just driving it. It's, it's it's like a Komodo dragon. <laughs> I don't know why that made me laugh. He's just so quick to be like like Make make sure the girl is okay. Yeah. Oh, see, no, I took it as like we have to take our clothes off. You do it first. <laughs> see, that that would be something like if this were the comedy version, like if this were the Austin Powers version of it, that would have been a joke. Yes. Where he's like, he's like, well, you heard the man <laughs> get undressed. I also like that Connery's really just treating this like a shower. Like, oh yeah, like, like, no, I I actually think it's like a fun funny moment to be honest. Yeah, like he's like literally like washing himself up, and like I'm sure like because he's a spy, he kind of knows a little more serious of having like radioactiveness. But I just like that he's like really just scrubbing him. He's scrubbing himself real well. He's like making sure he's getting all that grime off. Well, there there's also a level of like you know he's so much like in tune with the job. Like he's like, well, this is just what it is, so I might as well just enjoy a good shower. <laughs> Mm-hmm. <laughs> 
Get under those fingernails. This is really just a nice sort of spa service, really. I also and love like, like but making between, sure your fingernails are clean. I also love between MI6 and Doctor No's uh, compound. Like there is kind of like this very thorough a uh, presentation of what like the like the regular day to day workings are. Like there was a lot of attention being like. All right, he didn't get it. All right, put him in the fingernail thing. Is he good? All right, let's go. Okay, I can open up the thing. Like, there's a lot of like the, the the day workers that get mm-hmm. a lot of highlight in there that I think is funny. <laughs> Just. There is something great, though, about this as this kind of a concept of just them really, like, checking them in as if they were, like, at a hotel. And and just the sort of thing is, like, we were expecting you at some point. We thought it was going to be yesterday, but we're glad you're here today, and we'll show you to your rooms. And there's something that's really fun. And, and again, I think there's that certain charm of just the villain's layer being like this. And, and that really adds to the Bond element of these types of things you know i think it's a very bondish thing well you know it's an interesting thing and and the thing is like the bond world is a little bit too entrenched in the real world for you to do something like this um and it's kind of like something that's a little bit more in the vein of like maybe something like john wick but the way they kind of treat moments like this which i kind of think is funny and that it's room to do in either like a reboot of bond or another spy franchises is that there's kind of almost like this this uh this social compact in the spy world where like and you can almost treat it exactly how it's treated in this movie like bond knows that you know they're not in a good situation they've been caught by the bad guys they're being held prisoner but the bad guys always seem to be like okay we're going to give them the roof a room for the night we're going to give them room and board we're going to give them like a meal and you know we're like we're not animals like let's treat each other we're all like almost like super villainy and super spidum is always is part of the same job so these are all kind of like meetings that like you know we're all going to treat each other cordially until like the game starts so <laughs> i think that's actually like a fun kind of conceit for a spy movie going forward uh, have you, uh, you know, um, that's basically sort of I, on a very much larger scale, but that is sort of the central idea of the Venture Brothers world, mm-hmm. um, where like the superheroes and supervillains sort of have it's more of like contract work with each other, and that they're they are kind of more like you know it's more of a job, and there is like elements where they're outside the job, and you know like right 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 yeah i definitely and and, and you're absolutely right about that and there's other shows and you know uh material that has kind of treated it that way but i I always just did find it funny you're right where he's like in this situation where they are clearly screwed but you know i really hated that coffee by the way i mean you know they gave me decaf yeah it was decaf not not really i mean when you have a bad cup of coffee it's no good I mean, I don't drink coffee. So. Uh, that's why I'm letting you know. It's no good when you have a bad cup of coffee. Even like an okay cup of coffee. What the use of shadow here, by the mm. way. With with. Oh, with I I mean, like there there's Dr. a deliberate Nova. nature in t- in which everything is in, involved. I also like the colors of this scene too. This is yeah, this is Doc, really good. Uh, I really like these these first two Terrence Young directed films, especially with Terrence Young. 
it's really nice that Look, they, they put even, him in bed. They, they even, yeah, I was just about to say they even put him in the bed. Like it's like you can't, you couldn't. Oh, ask and the for reveal more. of the clawed hands right here, it's great. And again, Young just has this establishment of I. I think really, I mean, nobody could have imagined that the Bond franchise was going to go the way that it did and, and to the heights. But I really do feel like Young is on Broccoli and and Saltzman's vision of, oh, we're going to do a bunch of these. And maybe, like, Young is not going to be involved in all of them. Um, but he really gets this, you really get the sense that Young is setting up this franchise for success. And he's really setting it up to be, like, establishing a world, establishing a tone uh, that, that he gets to increase in From Russia with Love, but it, it really does demonstrate that Young really knows what he's doing uh, as a filmmaker in terms of introducing these characters. It's funny that her name, that's the kind of thing where it's like, you're ready, honey? And then I'm like, oh yeah, her name's Honey. That's why he said that. Like, not just like using it as like kind of that term of endearment. It's just like, oh yeah, no, your name is Honey, as far as I know. Bonsus is really eager to just go in whatever direction he wants. And it, it, I, I haven't, I can't believe we've gotten this far without mentioning Ken Adam's production design, which we, we've talked about a little bit in terms of the, the world production design. Oh, but. no, I mean, kind of like I was talking about, like the, the Dr. No room, like the interrogation I mean, room earlier on. I mean, that, that's I mean, good stuff, too. Yeah, Ken Adam is is a legend of not just Bond but the industry as a whole. He mm-hmm. he is among the all-time great production designers. And, and this this itself is just a showcase why. And again, it's just it's he Ken Adam starts so high with the villain layer right here with just the with the beauty and the sort of modernness modern aesthetic that he brings to it that I think every other Bond film tries to kind of up in its own unique way well it's hard because i i I hate to kind of get on 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 this kind of point because i think it's so easy to go down the rabbit hole of like okay well the way they do it now is not as interesting as the way they do it then but sometimes it's true and, and there's a level of the way in which like when you think about the layers that they reveal of the of the villains in the Craig films, like for instance, I mean they're cool, and I mean and and they're not bad, but there is a level of they are just kind of like these very modern, sleek, industrial uh, rooms, even if they are artistically lit, and, and some of them are really well, and some of those scenes are great, but you know you just don't really see anything as unique as like all right they're in an underground thing and it's kind of like a very uh like attention like this is somebody who definitely has a taste in architecture and they made their um their uh their lair to be comfortable to their tastes um it, it, it's just a way more unique interesting uh view of like what a villain's lair looks like as opposed to like there's computer screens everywhere or which is you know, yeah, it's just a really sleek the kind of compound the modern aesthetic yeah but like yeah it's like 
I think about again, like what Cat Adams done is like it's this one. You have sort of some of those peak, you know, more era ones like Drax's space station and and even Stromberg's aquarium in uh, Spy Who Loved Me and, and the big volcano set, like you know, kind of almost a magnum opus in a sense. Uh, and the super tanker in uh, in from uh, Spy Who Loved Me as well, like just the kind of the bigness but also just the, the giving the layer really does tell you a lot about the villain and like this layer really tells you a lot about dr no you know that he will doesn't even tell you and it really is brings another character element and, and ken adam is is much should be highly regarded for that well, it's funny when you look at other examples of like the spy genre, like when you look at uh, um, even other things that are a little bit more modern. Like even if you look at other outside of the serious stuff, like in the in the in the um, Austin Powers stuff, like you know those those uh, layers are pretty ridiculous, and you know that leads into like kind of the humorous nature of of um, you know Doctor Evil and things like that, and. You know, you know there there is just kind of like a, a there is a, a method to the madness of a uh, of a villain's lair at times that I think mm-hmm. um, sometimes sometimes is uh, more interesting than others, and and this is one of the more interesting ones I think. This is also a really good scene, um, a villain and hero talking to each other. Mm-hmm. Sort of like Bond and no, again, sort of what you were saying earlier is that they know the kind of the game they're playing. They know what they know enough about both sides to really kind of have sort of this type of conversation. And yes, like the Joseph Wiseman playing Dr. No here, you know, yes, playing the kind of the half Chinese, half German character um, really plays well up against Connery in terms of them trying to, you know, figure trying to figure out what the other knows and and how much the other actually knows and all that sort of fun stuff and then uh you know first of bond trying to to kind of protect that that bond girl uh you know by sending her away uh aspect but but this is a very good scene and again from young's perspective really wants to uh establish sort of this this relationship between a hero and a villain. I was also going to say there's also a consistency to the villain, the fact that, you know, he's going all the way to, you know, he actually, you you see where he lives, which is this room, and you see that he actually likes to have, like, sit down at a dinner, and, and it kind of is consistent with the whole, like, why they boarded them up and, like, you know, had this whole spa hotel situation set up. Whereas, like, sometimes, like, when you watch, like, another type... There, wait, hold on, sorry. The, the compensating for having no hands line. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's a classic. Um, um, but what I was going to say is, like, he, you know... Because otherwise, sometimes what they do is they just have the... Um, they just have the villain, like, you know, give them room and board, but then they otherwise just have, like, a very normal-looking base. Like, so, like, there is kind of, like, some character into into a lot of those plot elements in this film. And then right there, we just kind of got our first uh, introduction into Spectre a little bit. It really speaks to the confidence that Saltzman and Broccoli have in their plan to make this a series, that they just sort of n- name-drop Spectre just very briefly 
in a realm that it doesn't play into any other aspect of the movie, but obviously will play a huge, and their plans play a huge aspect of it going forward. But it it is very easy to say that, you know, it it speaks to the potential franchise, but I actually think it, it, you know, let's give it credit where credit's due. Like, it, it is interesting to put it in the movie because it does have context in the movie. You're basically revealing that, much like MI6, there is like this other there's a bigger world uh, of spy and it would be different if they're like who do you work for and he's like i there's people i work for who are more dangerous than you can ever imagine and you just and you kind of leave it vague here they're basically just saying like i work for an organization called specter like in their and they're kind of playing their cards out on the table so it's kind of like that slight difference between world building and sequel baiting and i and i think this lands in the more the world building that uh, obviously uh, leads room to uh, the se- for the sequels. Yes, but I just think again, it's just. Int- I, I think what's also most interesting about it is the fact that this that wasn't something you did at that time. You know what I mean? I I, I just think that there is something to speak where you wouldn't just mention this organization. In in they definitely were already planning, you know, for Russia with Love and and getting more Spectre stuff, or at least that's definitely in Broccoli's head. I just think it's just so unique. Uh, but 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 I guess my my, my my point being is like, you, wouldn't you think that would work even regardless if there were no movies? Like I, I, think, I think it's like I it's, think it. No, I think it absolutely works. But I also again, the kind of part of this is we're reflecting on the the context that we see now that we've seen the whole franchise and and just knowing the stories about just you know them getting Spectre involved and then of course having them having loot Spectre. But I just think that there's an. I, I think it works as both. I think that it definitely works by itself here, but I also think that it's impressive that they knew that that's an element they could put in there, not just for this movie, but for going forward. Yeah, it's definitely just like, regardless of like how much it is for future movies, just the comf the comfortability into like we're just going to present this world um, unapologetically. So yeah, I, I definitely agree. The big flash, but not the flash. Uh, he's barefoot too. <laughs> it's a strong shoe. Rubber shoes are immune to your charm. Thank you for that reference, Will. <laughs> Just a reminder for all of you listening, Poison Ivy in Batman and Robin is legitimately amazing, and Uma Thurman's performance as Poison Ivy in Batman and Robin is also legitimately amazing, and I will continue to make that argument until the day that I die. Meanwhile, Bond's about to go into Looney Tunes world. <laughs> No, Bond. Bugs Bunny's going to ask you to play some Bacharach. <laughs> That's the version of Space Chan that I want to see. <laughs> it's like a giant like card-playing contest down in Looney Tunes world. Yeah, it's basically just Casino Royale but with the Looney Tunes, I'd which is better it. than... 
I think either conversion of Casino, Casino Royale would be best with the Looney Tunes in it. One thing in I was a, actually... Wait, sorry. In a mm-hmm. Looney Tunes version of James Bond, you'd have to have Bugs as Bond, but you have to have Daffy as Felix that's really jealous of, of Bugs as Bond. And so he's constantly trying to outdo Bugs. Oh, I kind of yeah. want to write yeah. that movie now. Yeah, it's definitely like, and you know, it, it, it's kind of then like the B plot of the movie becomes like he's just like following Bond everywhere. Though Bond kind of, fo- Bond kind of like in, in a weird way, despite the mature content, I think kind of lends himself more to the Muppet world, if anything. Yes. Also, in our Looney Tunes version of Bond, Elmer Fudd is Dr. No. <laughs> Watch out, Bound. The water's coming to get you. That always reminds me, though, that there was, uh, in an unproduced Muppet movie uh, in the early 2000s, there was a Bond cameo written into it, um, which was going to be Pierce Brosnan as Bond uh, with, I believe it was going to be with Gonzo, if I remember correctly, that he was like on a mission with Gonzo. It's a pretty funny sequence, actually. Oh, I remember now. It was because I think it was Gonzo was going to be the new Bond, and there was going to be a Pierce Brosnan cameo about, like, he can't be the new Bond. Something to that effect. Again, you got to get this... I I love, like, sort of, again, with the, with the very, like, simple nature to an extent of this film maybe I'm not using the right word but even just the way that that Bond looks so beat up here you know and in a very different way than like Craig's Bond looks beat up like it just it really does feel like like Bond here has been through the ringer and, and has gotten hit by the well, doctor no has kind of taken him you know what the key and you've got like the raggedy the raggedy clothes and everything and just the bruises and the blood it just makes it feel so distinct. The key is is because what they do with Craig is that they always play, even in his most polished, they play like this gruff nature about him. Like they're always playing like that he's like kind of like this rough around the edges, um, even at his coolest bond. So this like is a fun the, shot too, by the way. The there where they're like behind the kind of the Oh yeah, yeah. Stuff like that. But, but in the Ames suits now, by the way. <laughs> um, but yeah, but that's kind of like what the issue is. Is like so. Then when the more he more he gets beat up, it's like it's it's good and it's gritty, but it's just kind of different levels of grit. Whereas there definitely was clean and polished, normal looking Bond earlier in this movie. So that when he starts to get like you know when he starts to survive the elements. You uh, you just notice it more. It just registers more. It's like he's been he's been through the ringer. Mm-hmm. And and you know I don't know if there's necessarily an an issue with the way that they do it with Craig, but it definitely is a, d- a distinct difference, at least for me, just wa- as a viewer. Yeah, I mean, it really does. Like the, he feels like he's always like beat up, or he's always in that mode of he's like. Well, yeah, I mean, I always go back to, like, you know, just watching the trailer. Like, he's just always so, like, just... (laughs) But I also think that it's also not just beat up physically, but but Craig as a Bond is always someone who who, who feels like he's been beat 
mentally. Oh, that, that's what I mean. He's just always in that state. So like, you know, whereas it, like we're we're uh, Bond here is still that cool, suave person who's sneaking around and killing people behind like cool, like uh, like kind of cellophane glass type of thing while also still having sort of this beaten up look about him. It just, it gives him that cool aura that I think young in this movie really wants to give him. I do like, uh, even though we did, we're praising the unique architecture and set design earlier. I do kind of like this like sleek, ex like big nature of this uh of 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 this set. Also, yes, uh, everybody here is uh Asian, definitely one hundred percent. But also, uh, just again, Bond just being like immediately like falling into this role where it's like again. Where he's not necessarily like in a different, you know, identity, but he is sort of playing the role of this henchman just to get into, you know, the lair. And just him being yelled at by uh, Dr. No and him immediately kind of bowing and just kind of going off and, and, and following orders. It's, it's just sort of, there is a funness uh, in how that plays into the movie. Again, the very deliberate nature to all the, the procedures of this, but it's kind of leading into sort of, you know, Bond figuring out a way to to save the day, which I which I like. It's also really interesting that that how again it's just one of those interesting things whenever you're looking back on iconography and in film that it's interesting of just how iconic of a Bond villain that Doctor No is and how he is sort of a fan favorite within especially the Bond community and how he really only has an appearance within the last kind of third ish of the movie um, and it just again speaks to Wiseman's performance and Ken Adams production design and the very nature of Dr. No as a film itself that that's still so memorable. And I also, I always love to these moments and, and, and it proves uh, throughout the Bond franchise where Bond just kind of goes for it, right? Like he just is like, well, I have to do something. I'm going to just increase this danger level uh, a little bit and, and make sure that uh, things are going wacky here at the uh, at the secret base <laughs> he pushes them away i also like how that guy just has like basically just like he's just in a plastic suit over it everybody else has like you're right the aim suits and that guy's just like covered in plastic <laughs> very direct sign too <laughs> so abandon this area 
I, I like that little kind of hint at like Doctor No's fighting style. Like it's just yeah. all like hands, which I think is really funny. Well, he, but he, but he like really he's he, re- he's like throwing hands as if he does it, like you know as as you probably would if you had dangerous metal hands. Yeah, he 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 relies on his hands, which I think is also his downfall. Camera, yeah. But again, I just the moments where Bond is put into that corner and he just has to go for broke. Also, like, wait, again, can I can I mention on this. while it's on screen right now, just this little bit that I do not remember at all. This payoff to his metal hands being his undoing, like he can't climb the thing. I told you, it's just his I don't remember are... that at all. That's so funny and messed up. But it's really like again, like you have this Bond, like I said, Bond going for broke. You have like this again. I think about Moonraker where he just like sets off the zero gravity. It's just like he, I just gotta, we gotta figure out something. Um, just stuff like that, I think, is always super fun with Bond. Um, even like in uh, uh, in the Living Daylights as well, when he's when he's has to drive the car out of the plane, it's just it's like we well we have to do something here. Um, I think that's again that just makes Bond fun is that he has this yeah he has the investigative nature and he has kind of the suaveness but when it comes down to it he's just going to try shit and see if it works just make sure it sticks to the wall and even like in in a Goldfinger like he he kind of has these plans of like escape from uh, you know just going for broke and trying to escape from Goldfinger's lair and it fails because of of, of different circumstances. I think that's just a fun. <laughs> Why did he hit that guy? That. that guy had no. Like he, that guy probably he like worked in like accounting, is, and he just wants to leave. And he's like, I don't even know what you're talking about, about this movie. Okay, so takes the guy. And it's like I, I don't know. I do want to talk about like you know her in this like little trap here. The reason this always captured my imagination is because, like, I like to imagine like it's such a supervillain setup trap, like. The whole, like, you're going to be tied up to this thing and the room is going to slowly fill up with water. I like to think that there was a whole other scene off camera of, like, the Dr. No voiceover. Like, he's like, well, Miss Ryder, like, you've collected your last seashell or something. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, yeah. and, and so I like to think that that happened off camera. Well, and, but it just kind of... But it, it, it builds that world. It builds like that the super villainy is still going on elsewhere as opposed like outside of the, the plot. Like I, yeah. I I don't know why it captures my imagination so much. Also remember, well, that was not the original intention of that scene. If you remember the facts is there were supposed to be a bunch of killer crabs walking up to her. Oh, but then that all the crabs awesome. were shipped dead. So they had to come up with something oh. at the last moment. Also, our our real first truly spectacular Bond explosion. Yes, the car going down the hill had a nice little fire to it, but this is these are the big Bond explosions we we want. Just big, lots of smoke. Um, but no, I think it speaks to again, like in another. I think it's just fun because in another Bond movie, uh, you would have you know the big scene where Honey Rider just get captured and and you get to see her in that. But again, it is a speak to just well, Bond is doing his own thing. That there is other stuff going on in Doctor No's machinations. I mean, the one thing, you know, I do kind of have to point out that is kind of, you know, interesting about it and, and is, 
another dicey little reputation with the Bond movies is like, you know, they do kind of give all this information about Honey Rider and her relationship to the plot and they don't pay it off in any way, shape or form. <laughs> right. Yeah. Especially in these early ones. <laughs> Again, just a little fun moment, I think. Oh yeah, that, yeah, yeah. With uh with Bond just being like, Do you need help? And even Honey just standing up just so confidently there. This fun stuff. And we end with uh not the Bond theme, but with uh underneath the mango tree once again. Whoa. Okay, both on the same level. That got really suggestive. Felix there. is looking a little bit too much at that, I think. Well, Bond, they're going to have to come back. What are you doing? And that's uh, Dr. No. Wow. Presented by, yes, United Artists. Filmed in Jamaica. And now we get the theme right here. All right. So Dr. No. Um, so let, let, let's, let's, uh, let's wrap up with some, uh, some post movie uh, uh, thoughts. Uh, that was, that was super, that was super fun to, to revisit. Like I said, especially with the context of the, of us, watching all of the films uh you want to go ahead and give some of just like your retrospective thoughts on the film yeah i i think it was uh it was really worth uh revisiting uh this movie um again it was one that was always in my rotation it kind of slightly fell out like it's still in like my top 10 uh having done the rankings or, or yeah it's in my top 10 still and i think going back i i, I really become i i think one of the things mostly with the podcast and i think this is something we'll reflect on more in our in our series finale but one of the things that i've gotten most out of it in terms of my bond fandom is really appreciating the behind the scenes aspect a lot more and i I knew about like you know the different directors and terrence young and ken adam and peter hunt and stuff like that uh and, and their contributions in general to the franchise but really sort of revisiting like these films from a filmmaker perspective, I think has been super fascinating and really viewing this, not just as the first Bond movie, but, but the work that Terrence Young does to really introduce the character, sort of the subtleties of Connery's performance in many ways. And even, even the way that Hunt edits the movie and, and Adams designs the movie, there's, there's such... Uh, it all really comes together and just still a very watchable package. And it's not, you know, it's not as big and, and in some ways not as fun as some of those later Bond films, but I think it's still one of the best Bond films. Um, and, and shares, I mean, as the first, it's just, you can see everything coming together uh, in such a unique way that I think, you know, really gets established in For Much With Love, but this is such a really, really good start to everything. Yeah, I think for me, the most interesting um, element uh, going back and watching of it is, is you know, it's so tired to say, I don't even want to say grounded, but just some of the more subdued elements of it. Like, you know, Bond is such like an archetypical, 
or an archetypical character right now. Like, there's just so much, um, as the kids would say, extra about Bond. Like, you know, even the way in way, like, because you, you have to even acknowledge, like, especially when you get into, like, the Dalton and the Brosnan era, they, you know, these actors, when they come in to play Bond, they are, you know, hamming it up just a little bit. Like, you know, you're leaning into, like, I'm the coolest guy on the planet. Like, you know, there is a level of that. And and to be and to be fair, that is what we know and love Bond for. And even, and even um, as we get into, especially when you get into the next two movies, uh, Connery's getting more and more comfortable with even... Uh, elevating the material into that level too but when you get when you rewatch dr no it really is kind of you, you do get taken aback by that he really is more of a subdued normal guy in comparison to the big performances um that you have that you've seen from you know the bond films you know i i think sometimes we often get big performance confused with like big like you know like you know like i don't know something like you know nicholas cage like type of crazy performances but you know yeah or uma thurman yeah or uma thurman but there is a level of like you know they are leaning into like i said that they're the you know they're the coolest guy in the room and and you know connery's not really doing that one right here but it does allow for a lot of those smaller little acting moments, like, you know, whether it's those little moments of just humanity with, like, you know, him reacting to Honey Rider's story or um, what was it? What was the other? There was another little beat that um, that I had mentioned of the way that um, uh, he acted. Um, um, I can't remember off the top was of my it, head. Was it like sort of the, the tiredness of the kill? Yes, uh, yeah, the, the, the yeah, like death. yeah, when like when he when he when he kills the guy and it's less of a triumphant moment is more like oh I got to take out the trash like more like that. So it allowed for a lot more moments like that that frankly for me I don't feel like I and, and maybe I need to watch the movies again admittedly but um um that I don't see for a little while but so there there's that. And and one thing that I did I didn't get to mention during the movie that I I did like and noticed is that you know the bond films at a certain point really or the the bond performances really shine the more that the strengths of the actor are allowed to come through and some of the, like the natural humanity or the charisma of the actor is allowed to come through and i think those are the best parts with connery um i think dalton's more theatrical nature are the things that um, elevate the material for him. I think Brosnan's the way he's just so easily able to bounce off actors for him. And then, unfortunately, I think you know we've talked about. I think some of the greater moments are Craig. Um, Craig is just naturally a funny guy, and you know those little moments uh, where he is able to lean into that actually uh, become some of the funnier moments. Um, so it's interesting that the those little bits of humanity that the actor naturally brings into it combine with the fact that this is probably one of the more subdued um bond performances um makes it a very interesting retrospective watch uh for me uh, I, I think um and then the other thing that i i would mention is obviously we didn't really talk about how this movie just in general does not quite have a lot of like the mainstay gags that the franchise is known for. Like it doesn't have the gadgets. Um, you know, there's, there's a lot of those different types of elements where, I mean, they do bond James bond, but other than that, a lot of the running gags really aren't 
as well established in this one yet. Um, I, I think it's like kind of a nice mixture because I think you, again, you see those pieces being built. Um, you know, I think you get to see, again, sort of the, the gunshot, the barrel shot and, and sort of the opening credits. You get to see sort of the, the brief moments of his relationship with M and, and Money Penny. And there's like there's some fun moments with them that we didn't even weirdly mention either. Like there's the moment where Bond's about to leave M's office and, you know, Bo- you know M's like, Bond? leave the gun and like he has to leave his old gun and then immediately even after that where you know he and money penny are about to start another thing and then like calls in is like none of the, none of the normal stuff money penny bond is is in a hurry mm-hmm. a double seven is in a hurry but you know, like i think you get some of that and again i think it almost in terms of establishing the bond franchise i think really it's like dr no and from russia with love are two pieces of a whole because i think that yes and i, I think like all of that kind of gets really big in Goldfinger when Guy comes in and really ups the humor and ups sort of the absurdity. But I also think that, again, like with, with From Russia With Love, you kind of get a little bit more of the bigger villain stuff. You get a little bit more of the gadgets. Uh, even if they're still lower key, you still get like Q coming in with, with the briefcase and everything like that. Um, you get more of the world building. You get more of Spectre. So I think... Dr. No is a really good start. And I think it pairs really well with From Russia With Love uh, to really kind of establish the beginnings of this Bond character. Yeah, I, I think that there was actually a couple things I was going to say, but I think that actually sums it up uh, fairly well for me. And it distills into this point of that when you really watch it and you really look carefully at it, you can really see all the unique dynamics that make you want another one of these movies. Because, mm-hmm. like I said, like it really is establishing itself as a unique type of of spy movie where, you know, it's not too overly serious, even this despite some of the details of the plot. Um, you know, it is playing a little bit lighter and then um, you know, and there's like danger and there's threats and there's fun. But then also like when the supervillain shows up, it's not just some like you know, terrorist or it's not just some like, you know, government official. It's like a guy with metal hands and a dragon tank. Like, so it's like there, there's a level of, and, and they don't really, you know, uh, explain it so much that it kind of gives this aura of like, okay, well not only are you just introducing these elements, you're kind of introducing this spy world without it being like a parody of itself in it or without it getting too crazy so and there's just enough of those hints of of it being this uh, bigger world um, that you can definitely see where you're like, well, I want to see more adventures uh, uh, of Bond. Um, and I also think, and, and then also, think, and, and also, ahead. real quick, like, and it, it's just because, and also because it's since it's not pre- presenting itself as having kind of like a definitive story. Um, you know, it's more of just kind of like, you know, a straightforward, we're introdu- we're dropping you into the life of this guy, here's his mission, there's no like bigger real point to be made. It really is just setting itself up for success, I think. Indeed. Um, I agree, because it really, again, I think you really look at Dr. No being a really good first choice, and even again, from what you love, being a really good second choice, uh, in terms, but especially Dr. No, in terms of, again, really establishing sort of the mission motif so that, you know, when you get to another Bond movie, then there's another mission. And, you know, and it can get as big or as crazy or as small or as intimate as it, as it needs to be. 
Uh, one other thing, just real quickly, that I did want to reflect on uh, in terms of just having watched Dr. No, in terms of one of the unique aspects of the Bond franchise is really like how I think that the length of the franchise and the decades it spans really speaks to sort of what makes Bond unique and what makes Bond fun because it's really interesting going back into this early 60s era and still getting the little bits of like that 60s era, you know, really popping in and, and Bond becoming such an icon of the 60s. Um, but still then really thinking about how, you know, we get into more in the 70s and Dalton in the 80s and Bronson in the 90s and more and more in the 80s and also Dalton in the 90s, uh, 80s. Uh, and really to establish sort of the how the visual nature and how the um, sort of the aesthetic that's around Bond does get the change over time because of the timing period where even if we like look to like other franchises, it's like even like if you look at like, you know, just by the nature of how the MCU works, it's like, yeah, like going back to Iron Man and Thor and, and Captain America's is still so different than what they become, but there's still sort of a general aesthetic just because it's all kind of in the 2000s and same thing with you know and it's like otherwise you're getting to like more fantastical franchises like star wars and and star trek which we're going to look at is you know because they're more fantastical and of a different world you don't really get the sense of like yes they span decades but you know it's all generally looks the same whereas bond you really get to see how the franchise gets to view over different decades and different world happenings and different political machinations that are happening around these films and it's fun to come back to dr no and just see sort of this simple film becoming so iconic to its era of the 60s absolutely couldn't say it better myself um i so uh i hope everybody enjoyed uh this fan bonzilla commentary track of of dr no i mean um, you know, uh, it'll be uh, I'll, it'll be uh, imported into the computers, and I'll give it a once over. So hopefully, there's no uh, uh, technical issues. But as far as we're as far as from my end, Nick, it, it seemed to go off without a hitch. How about you? I've always wanted to do a commentary, uh, and I hope to do one on on a kind of old project of mine someday. But but this is a sort of an next best thing. Um, it was a lot of fun. Well, guess what? I'm you looking get, forward to the next one. Yeah, you get to do it again. You get to do it again as we uh, do a commentary track for the uh, 1954 original film Gojira, and uh, that that one is going to be fun. And this has just gotten me more excited uh, to do that one. Yeah, and and it also this made me uh, excited for our sort of quote unquote series finale. Uh, to really kind of go even deeper on the reflection on watching these movies and sort of this podcast as a whole. Absolutely. Absolutely. All right, then. Um, I, I think that will do it uh, for us. Uh, so, Nick, um, as always, I say at the end of every episode, we're done. I'm done and you're done. So why don't you just plug us away, my friend? All right. Well, you still follow us at bondsofthepod at, at gmail.com. Give us an email. Um, you know, like I said, where we are looking for uh, your, not only your thoughts on our podcast and its history, uh, and maybe, your, again, your favorite episodes, your favorite moments, favorite movies you've discovered. So reach to us, to us reach out to us, especially on uh, twitter.com slash bonzilla007 uh, or facebook.com slash bonzilla007. Uh, and I've already, you know, uh, uh, people have seemed to be excited for the new format going forward. I know 
I've gotten some requests on possible other franchises to look at in the future already from some of you. So thanks for reaching out again. Continue to reach out. Let us know your favorite moments. Uh, or just like and subscribe. Tell your friends on soundcloud.com slash Bonzilla 007 or iTunes. You're, you're about to get to the perfect time. It's kind of like the reboot. So if you if you don't want to share someone all these hundreds of episodes of Bond and Godzilla content, well, we're going to have a clean slate coming up soon, folks. All right. Well, until next time, I'm Will. And I'm Nick. Take care. And thanks for joining us for Dr. No Commentary Edition. Bye-bye.